Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to uh, the February edition of, oh, sorry, the March edition of the uh, Construction um, Workers' Compensation webinar brought to you here from Lois Law Firm. Uh, my name is Tashia Rasul. I am a partner here at Lois Law Firm where I defend uh, workers' compensation claims that arise out of construction accidents in New York. That's all I do here. I consider it my specialty. I also oversee a team of attorneys and paralegals who handle only construction workers' comp claims over here. Um, we work closely with the general liability uh, defense team in uh, all of the cases that we work on as they involve some kind of a wrap-up uh, OSIP, CSIP situation. Um, and for those of you who have been following me for the past two years or so, thank you for coming back month after month. For those of you for the very first time joining me here today, uh, thank you and welcome. I hope you'll find this webinar series useful. Um, my goal is every month to go through a topic that I think is pertinent with regards to uh, collaboration between workers' compensation and general liability defense counsel in an, in, in an effort to ultimately um, save the clients money to reduce their exposure and to close up claims in a timely manner. So let's see, I am behind in the months. I'm probably behind in the slides already. All right, here we go. So what are we gonna discuss today? I'm gonna talk about the timeline of a workers' comp claim, and I'm not going to go into a lot of details about actual workers' comp. The goal is to focus on the, the key milestones uh, throughout the life of a claim and to connect them to the, the collaboration that I've been focusing on and when it's time to actually reach out to General Liability Council to give them an update on what's going on in the workers' comp claim. Um, I'll talk uh, a little bit about how it, uh, whatever happens in the workers' comp claim impacts the general liability claim and how information that we can get from the general liability claim can help us at our ends. And um, like I mentioned, we'll talk about the milestones. As a reminder, this is a live presentation, so in the end, you can type in your questions and I will provide answers. If we're out of time, I can certainly send you an email. You can always give me a call if you think of something uh, after the webinar is over. Um, so this is what the box is going to look like in the end. You'll type your question in, it'll pop up at my end, and um, I'll provide you with an answer. All right, so let's get into it. The timelines of a worker's comp claim. Now, as you may or may not know, especially when a claim is denied, um, you, we can go from an accident date or the alleged accident date to a trial within 30 days, 60 days, depending on how quickly it's reported to the board and how soon the medical evidence is submitted. Um, for an accepted claim, there must be, and there we recommend it in every single claim, uh, for there to be an inv initial investigation to confirm loss before you decide to accept the claim. Now, I know oftentimes we have sufficient evidence, you know, a report from the supervisor or someone on the job site that the accident happen, we got the incident report, but I do think it's important within the first 24 hours to conduct an actual investigation. The reason is we've seen these claims start with maybe just a pinky finger, maybe just an elbow or a shoulder, and before you know it, it goes through the entire body and we have a site claim and traumatic brain injury when the claimant didn't injure his head. So even though you might be inclined to accept the claim because an accident did occur and it was just for 
um, allegedly one body part. The initial investigation is going to capture and preserve information you, you will most certainly need down the road. Um, we've seen the trend with claimants just adding the body parts. So we know the mechanism of injury, who was involved, what was involved, um, what exactly happened, which body parts were actually hit on the floor or the scaffolding or whatever else. We would be able to use that information down the road to defend against additional body parts, um, even lost time, um, to, to, to really try to reduce your exposure and limit the body parts in the claim. Um, medical and lost time benefits uh, begin immediately. You must issue payments um, as, soon as, as soon as possible. It's the, the popular 1810 rule. Um, that you know you, you you must issue the benefits within uh, 18 days of lost time or 10 days of actually like knowledge of the accident. Um, so you really have like just a little bit of time to get your information together, review the medicals, decide which body parts you're going to accept the claim for, and benefits must um, you must start issuing the benefits, or you'll be subject to a penalty. And then additional body parts. So after the initial medicals that come from the medic or CEMD or whatever urgent care they're going to, I can guarantee you within a week they're going to a workers' comp doctor because their colleague has told them about an attorney who is going to refer them to a slew of doctors who specialize in workers' comp, and you'll see additional body parts in the records quickly. Uh, surgeries, I mean, I've seen these claimants, they're not afraid to get cut up. They're, they're willing to undergo the surgeries to justify uh, their allegation that, you know, they were injured as a result of the accident or the alleged accident. And the consequential injuries, these are tacked on as late as a year, sometimes we see two years later, because they're consequential, you know, the, the burden is a little less in terms of the time from the initial accident. So let's just say a claimant has had a, um, like a knee injury, right? He might be claiming a consequential, uh, like a contralateral knee, or even like a back injury because of an, an alleged ontologic gait or something like that. So we need to key up, uh, tee up the file to um, preserve uh, any information, any evidence that we can to, um, to, to, to contest any potential consequential injuries in the future. All right, so in a denied claim, we still have to act because the rules are very strict and if we don't comply with the deadlines, we can waive our defenses. Um, especially in the, the construction claims uh, where there are multiple uh, contractors on the job site, and there would be like different insurance carriers potentially involved and the board doesn't do a great coverage search. Um, denials can sometimes take a while to figure out. And if, however, if we don't file the actual FROI or SROI 04 and our PA 16.2, while we do the investigation, we could be found to waive our defenses. So the rule is, and the, so the board issues an EC-84, which is a notice of inlet. The carrier must, within 25 days of the filing of the notice of admitting, file a FROI or SROI 04 showing that it's denying the claim. If this is not done, then the carrier will be found to have waived its um, jurisdictional defenses. After that, a PH 16.2 pre-hearing conference statement must be filed uh, 10 days before the pre-hearing conference statement. 
our practice is as soon as we're aware of the denial and our client has told us they filed the FOIA 204, we file the PS 16.2 and then file any amendments if we need to thereafter uh, while we wait for the hearing to be scheduled. Um, after, after the alleged accident occurs, the claimant has to submit medicals in order for a hearing to be, <clears throat> to be scheduled by the board. If there are no medicals, the hearing is not going to be scheduled. So we usually see a trend. There is this accident that he claims happens, uh, retains counsel shortly thereafter, he gets the medicals, and then you get the hearing with the board. Sometimes um, the, the doctors submit the medicals. The doctor that they initially go to is a workers' comp doctor. They would submit the medicals to the board, and that's, uh, that triggers a hearing uh, sooner than normal. The pre-hearing conference, um, it can be scheduled as soon as 30 days after the submission of medicals. We've actually seen it sooner. The board is amping up its efforts to really move these claims forward. But on the other hand, we've seen them fall through the cracks and maybe like months go by before we get a hearing. And then the board is back to scheduling these trials um, within 30 days of the pre-hearing conference, something that we have been arguing that for these construction claims, they should be removed from the expedited calendar because of the complex nature of them. Um, because a lot of times we don't know who the, um, the, the, the proper employer should even be, where exactly the accident happened. Because, you know, they're unwitnessed accidents and the claimants do not provide us with the information that we actually need. Now, the judges have been more and more amenable to removing them from the expedited calendar, the actual trial. But they've been giving us a hard time with the IMEs. They're still telling us to get the IMEs within 30 days, which is something we should be arguing for more time because it's hard to get a good IME within 30 days, given all of the, the notice rules and the service of the report and so forth. Um, it, it's, it's almost always impossible to get a timely IME if it's set for 30 days. So the milestones that we should be focusing on in the workers' comp claim, given how fast it goes, right? We should always be thinking of these milestones from the moment a claim is filed or from the moment that we become aware of the claim. Um, from the very beginning, are we accepting or denying the claim? Keep in mind the rules that govern each of them when, when benefits are to be issued, if it's accepted, when your denial documents are to be filed if it's a denied claim. Um, speaking with witnesses, we all know the construction job site is very organic, it's changing. Uh, Whoever is there today may not be there tomorrow. The machinery that's there today may not be there tomorrow. Um, the, the workers, the laborers, the, the trades, they are union uh, individuals who move from you know, job site to job site on need. So they may be there tomorrow, they may not be there tomorrow for you to capture uh, statements from them. And this is the reason why we really, we highly suggest having investigators go out within the first 24 hours to get as much information as possible. The trial date, we should keep in mind when our trial date is because that's when we're going to be producing witnesses. That's when we'll have to discuss the IME with, with the judge, uh, potentially depositions of the doctors. And here's where you should be talking to your general liability adjuster or defense counsel saying, hey, workers' comp is having this trial coming up. Uh, the judge is going to make a decision at the hearing. It's only about 60 days after the accident. I know your GL claim 
is that nothing's happened yet. He probably hasn't even filed. But do you have any information that you can share with them? Um, if it's a like a, a claim against a public entity, there might be a 50-H hearing that takes place earlier on. Um, the transcript can be provided to your workers' comp attorney as uh, certified um, statements, sworn statements by the claimant that we can use in our claim to compare and contrast with what he's testifying to with regards to how the accident happens, um, any investigation report, any information the General Liability Council has. Of course, within all um, HIPAA uh, regulations and rules of evidence and so forth in terms of sharing information. Um, the IME date, I think it's very important to keep, keep an eye on the IME date to make sure it's timely, make sure it's within a reasonable date, uh, uh, a reasonable distance of um, the claimant's home so there's no excuse for them to go. And if you want to, you know, set up surveillance around your IME, at least you have that flagged and you're, you're, you're following through with it. Depositions for depositions in workers' comp, it's generally just the treating doc, um, the treating doctors and the IME doctors' depositions. Those are uh, directed within 55 days of the pre-hearing conference. So what happens is generally we go back for the trial, we'll discuss the, the outcome of the IME, and then you have additional time to do the depositions, and then the judge is going to make a decision. Sometimes the judges, depending on who it is, will not set the trial within 30 days. They'll bring the trial back after the completion of the IME and the depositions, which is usually better because based on what a doctor has testified, you can also cross-examine the claimant. Although the flip side works also because we can use the claimant's testimony to try to cross-examine the doctors depending on what the situation is. But in any event, the deposition transcripts, I think, is something that should be provided to your general liability counterpart. Um, it would be disclosed as part of discovery, as part of the workers' comp file. It's something they can get if they have a release. Additional body parts, we have to keep an eye on those medicals to see what exactly those medicals are saying. I was recently reviewing a claim last week, and no joke, it started with a pinky finger. Then it moved to the elbow, shoulder, neck. And then a month later, the doctor's report said bilateral wrist. So I, I, I'm not sure how the injury like really traveled from the pinky finger all the way up then to like the next hand. But then the doctor had quote unquote a justification for the bilateral wrist injury. And all of this happened in a month. So we really have to pay attention to what the doctors are saying in the reports and how they're tacking on these additional body parts and their rationale for it. And we should be attacking those um, as, as, as the time comes, whether it's the time of an IME or cross-examination of the doctor or even taking the claimant's testimony as to what happened. Um, keeping a close eye on it and measuring it against the, you know, the initial records would help to reduce um, the, the amount of claims that are, are, are the body parts that are being uh, included in, in any particular claim. And you should be telling your uh, general liability counterpart about these body parts because each one kind of have a particular value when you're in, right? So we're trying to keep them at bay in the workers' comp claim because once they're established, they're being pursued on the general liability side saying, hey, well, you know, workers' comp found that I injured all 10 of these body parts, so we're all set. That's what I'm going to claim on my GL side. Our reduction or suspension. Um, 
of payments, uh, we should be keeping our eyes again on the medicals that drive this. If our IME comes back saying the benefits should be reduced or suspended, then um, we should be following the appropriate um, uh, application of the RFA to, to send the benefits. And again, you should be telling your GL counterpart what's happening in your case. Labor market attachments, this is something we should be pursuing, even though you know our uh, construction workers, their doctors are always saying, well, you know, they can't return to their construction jobs and they only have a high school education and they've been doing this for 30 years. They don't know how to do anything else. You can't retrain them. And that doesn't matter. Under the law, if you have a less than total disability, you have the obligation to look for work within your restrictions, and we should be pursuing that. Even if their doctors say an 80% or 90% disability, which would translate into a sedentary work, push the claimant to go back to work or to look for work. They start getting annoyed, and that's when they actually you know, say, all right, I guess I'll go back to work. Um, and if they don't do what they're supposed to do, then you're able to suspend benefits, which hopefully would give your GL counterpart some leverage in, in their claim also. Claimant return to work. Um, unfortunately, in the construction claims, you only see those a handful of times, but the trend is for the younger claimants, you know, like their 20s, 30s, they, they, they know they have their career ahead of them. And if it's just like an ankle sprain or elbow sprain, for, for, for the most part, they return to work and it closes out in an SLU, even if they have a general liability claim, uh, the value is lower just because you know the, there's no uh, extensive lost wages and stuff like that. Um, so whenever a claimant returns to work, let your GL defense counsel, let the adjuster know so they can include that in their file in terms of um, you know uh, making it a part of their settlement negotiations and so forth. All right, permanency. So we're coming to the end of our workers' comp claim here that's been established. Uh, it takes about, if, if there's no surgery, permanency can be addressed in about a year. The guidelines say if the parties agree, it can be addressed within six months. But I mean, this is workers' comp we're talking about. The doctors are going to continue to treat and the claimants are going to continue to treat and no one wants to agree that there's permanency within six months. So generally, it's a year from the accident or a year from the surgery. So depending on how many surgeries he's had, um, I've had cases where we were directed to produce a permanency report and then the doctor comes back and says, oh wait, he needs his new surgery. After litigation, for whatever reason, sometimes the surgery is approved and then we have to wait an additional year for permanency. Now, the permanent impairment finding, um, the LWAC, is what we're pretty much stuck with in terms of the exposure in the claim. So as we're approaching this, um, this part of, our, of, of the workers' comp claim, we should be thinking about how we can um, you know, reduce uh, exposure, like permanent impairment exposure. Um, we'll have the IME, we'll take the claimant's testimony, we should probably get the vocational um, rehabilitation report or specialist comments. A lot of times we have this on the general liability side, so we can use that report um, to, 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 um, to, to include as part of our workers' comp claim and to argue against, you know, uh, claiming claiming that he has a permanent total disability and so forth. But keeping in mind that, you know, the, the finding, the, the permanent impairment finding, that's going to be pretty much the end of the claim 
and the claimants going to get the benefits for life. So it's, it's like our last chance to try to reduce our exposure in the workers' comp claim. Fraud findings, I think they're extremely important. I think we should be eyeing up all of our cases for a potential um, a fraud defense. Uh, see how you can um, how you can incorporate it, whether the claimant is actually returned to work and we have surveillance showing them working, which I haven't seen many of those. Generally, we usually get the fraud findings um, from the claimant uh, not disclosing a prior accident or claim or lying to the doctor about something or doing activities that are inconsistent with what his doctor is saying that he's able to do. Not exactly work, but maybe he's doing like you know, things around his house or like taking care of his like kids at the park and stuff. Whereas he's telling the doctor he's sitting in the house all day doing nothing or he can't get up or he can't walk and so forth. Any small thing that's inconsistent with what he's telling the doctors because the medicals drive the claim, we should be looking to see whether we can pursue a fraud defense. And by doing so, you're gonna give your general liability defense counsel a lot of information to uh, create some leverage in their negotiations. All right, so the pace. I've really been talking about how the workers' comp claim goes by so quick. In comparison to the general liability claim, um, it, it, it's fast. Before you know it, we're at permanency, and I'm talking to general liability defense counsel, and they're now going through the discovery phase, uh, perhaps depositions haven't been completed, releases haven't been provided, and sometimes we're talking about two years out. However, because what happens in the workers' comp claim can really impact what happens in a general liability claim, the reason and the basis for me preaching month after month that it's worth collaborating between the two, we need to ensure that the workers' comp claim is teed up as well as possible because things happen so quickly, you know, uh, body parts are included, surgeries are approved, the claimant stays out of work, we have the permanent impairment finding that kind of locks you in for uh, two and a half years, three years at the statutory maximum uh, rate. Because of this, we need to be cautious about what we're doing in the workers' comp claim. Because you know what, three years down the road, when your jail defense counsel say, all right, we're gonna go to mediation or you know, we're not able to settle this, but we're going to go to trial. They're going to be relying on what's happened in the workers' comp claim to see if they can contest the claimant's allegations there and to see if they can pick apart their uh, excessive settlement demands um, to, to see if they can knock off some body parts and some dollars in their end. So it's really important to ensure that our side is, is, is dependent from the very first day and that for everything that's being raised, we are uh, uh, equipped with evidence, whether it be medical or not, to uh, contest whatever the claimant is alleging. Um, the, next, the next point I wanted to talk about is what possibly went wrong in your claim when you're, you're at the end and you know, we have a 75 or 85% uh, LWEC finding, and on the general liability side, your GL counsel is saying, listen, all of these things happen. You know, the, claim, the workers' comp claim has been established with TBI, which is like an infusion, apparently, and the claimants had lumbar and cervical fusion, 
And, you know, we had all this information, and I don't know why the workers' comp claim went that way. What exactly went wrong? It's, 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 there was no collaboration. That's, that's what happened, right? Um, there was no collaboration and no paying attention to the file from the very beginning. Um, the common errors I've seen that kind of lead us to always try to put out fires would be situations where the claims were accepted without doing the investigation. Um, you know, we get the referral, they're like, we're accepting the claim for these five body parts. I'm like, okay, are you really sure? And they're like, yeah, the incident report, you know, says that he fell 10 feet and he fell, you know, the, the heart kind of fell off and the hospital records indicate the same. And then a week or two later, we get the investigation report and there's a lot of stuff that we can pull apart to contest what exactly was injured. But we've seen where claims were accepted um, without the investigation. I always counsel my clients, um, you have to in good faith accept the claim if you know an accident occurred, right? But it would be better to accept a lesser number of body parts while the investigation continues and then um, eventually uh, accept additional body parts if it's warranted. Um, agree to rates in the very beginning, um, not pursuing labor market attachment. This is something that could continue along in a claim. And before you know it, a year has gone by and we haven't litigated degree of disability to try to push the claimant back to work. And you're paying at the statutory maximum rate because a lot of these construction workers, um, their salaries are so high that even a 50% or a 25% rate uh, is the statutory maximum, right? Um, which is over $1,000 right now for dates of loss since July of 2021. Um, so you're agreeing to the rates, they're at a TR, and we have no leverage or no opportunity to raise labor market attachment. This is something we should be keeping in mind at the very beginning. From the time we get our first IME, and especially if the IME is very favorable to us, we should pursue uh, labor market attachment. We should try to get the rate reduced, um, litigate degree of disability. This is really going to create more work for the claimant. And we've seen when we create work for the claimant and their attorneys, they kind of back down and they try to go back to work or you know, treatment kind of diminishes. Um, but if we just keep giving them what they want, they're, they're going to the doctors every 90 days, bare minimum, the doctor's writing up the report, the attorneys uh, getting their fees, and they're just pretty much milking the system. So I think um, for any of your, Case as, as soon as you get that first IME, let's start thinking about litigating the rates, degree of disability, and pursuing labor market attachments. Um, when when these things happen, when when we're not paying attention to the file, when these things are happening, then the general liability claim is easily substantiated, right? Dead body parts are established. Claimant hasn't been forced to go back to work. You're still paying him after the two, two or three years, and the exposure just continues to increase. So um, very beginning, start defending your claim even before the claimant has actually filed a claim from the first uh, day that you're aware of something may have happened or the claimant alleges something happened. Uh, don't wait for him to file a C3, start your investigation. Oh, look, I went ahead again, see? I am <laughs> I'm behind in my head, but this is really the solution, right? Be proactive from the very first day. Um, treat your workers' comp claim like your general liability claim. So that's one of the things that we do here. We just don't walk in as like 
forward by social workers, no offense to social workers, um, or like uh, adjusters, glorified adjusters, no offense to adjusters, but we handle every claim as an attorney. We are known to every every case that we have. We go into court and we start the arguments and the adversary, sometimes even the judges now, oh, here goes Lois again, right? And why are they saying that? Because we're actually doing our jobs over here. We are being attorneys. We are digging into the files. We are looking at every single uh, page that is filed with the board. We're doing the investigations. We're doing the surveillance. Um, we are throwing a grenade into their canoe as much as we can. Because you know what? Once they have to start doing work, they start backing down. And that's what we have to do. Your attorney should be treating your workers' comp claim, even though it's administrative stuff that you're doing, like a real claim. The investigation should be done, the evidence should be done, the cross-examination should be done. You should be providing your reports, um, your witnesses. Witnesses are not only for trials and denied claims, um, they are for additional body parts six months, a year down the road. Bring your witness in to testify regarding the mechanism of injury, the accident happened. This is something you have to stay on top of because the moment you start treating it like another workers' comp claim, that's when things spiral out of control, the claims established for everything under the sun, the claimants out of work, just sitting at home collecting benefits, and millions of dollars is being um, paid up in your general liability claim because you're kind of like, you know, the workers' comp claim is supporting it. Um, in, in order to stay on the same page so that the entire team is on the same page, the workers' comp adjuster, the general liability adjuster, workers' comp defense, general liability defense, the clients, right, the insurance carrier, or the owner of the project, milestones have to be reported. So as soon as something happens, we should be telling the other side. One of the things that we do is once the, like whatever happened in, in a trial or the additional body part was disallowed or accepted, or we have a little market casualty file uh, finding, we would immediately reach out directly to general liability counsel, just giving them the update. Of course, when it comes to surveillance, you're not allowed to share that with general liability side because they have their own disclosure rules. They would have to abide by, and if they're aware of surveillance, they would have to disclose that. On the workers' comp side, there's no requirement to disclose it, so keep your lips sealed. Uh, don't tell GL counsel. Let the client make a decision about what they want to do. All right. So... I do want to talk about workers' comp law section 21A. And I've been counseling my clients to rely on this um, statute more and more, especially in these construction claims where uh, the defense, um, I'm, I'm sorry, where the, where the claims uh, move so quickly, but the investigation takes a little bit longer and it's so complex, so many moving parts in it. This statute permits a carrier to take up to a year. 365 days to determine whether it will accept or deny a claim. However, there are procedures that must be followed. Timely payments should be made during the, 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 the one-year period, and the claimants and the board have to be notified that such payments are being made without liability. So how is that done? It's done by filing the FROI or the SROI report, and there's like a little box that says without liability. And that gives you additional time to investigate your claim. It's better than accepting it outright because it's hard to backtrack that acceptance. Um, 
the only times we've been successful with kind of backtracking it is try to pursue a fraud defense. Otherwise, once a claim is accepted, it's moving forward. Um, at the same time, we have tight deadlines with regards to the denials. So this, um, it, like invoking your right under 21A gives you additional time to properly investigate, get all of the information you need and make a determination. So I know one of the things my clients say, well, what happens with the money that we paid out? If you paid out six months of benefits and it turns out that the claim should be rightfully denied and it's denied and you prevail at trial, you'll get reimbursed by the state. That's how it works for the, for the money that you paid out. So I know you're kind of putting out some dollars up, up front, but I think it's worthwhile given potentially how many millions you, you would be you know, uh, paying for your general liability claim and hundreds of thousands on general workers' comp claim. So what are some civil milestones we should be asking about? So I know we're talking about this from the workers' comp side, but I think we should be familiar with what happens in the general liability side. And this is why we have a dedicated team here at Lois that focuses only the construct on the construction claims, because we have knowledge about how these civil claims work, right? Because if we don't, we don't know what questions to ask. We don't know what things mean when we're talking to general liability counsel and they're talking about discovery and motions and PPHs and depositions and mediations, if we don't have an understanding, we wouldn't be able to help them. So here are the key civil milestones that I'm always focused on. Um, the first thing is the statute of limitations. Keep in year, it's three years for negligence claims, and this is the reason why sometimes our workers' comp claim is at the end, and now the general liability claim is starting up. For a public entity, um, for, for actions that are being brought against a public entity, um, there must be a notice within 90 days. It's like a notice of intent to, to bring suit. And then there is a 50-inch hearing for the public entity claims. Uh, the 50-inch hearing is essentially like a deposition. I know it's called a hearing, but it's not before a judge. It's just the, the attorneys and the claimant and the court reporter. And this is where the general liability counsel has the opportunity to ask as many questions as possible to get an overall understanding of the claimant, his background, his life, his personal life, and um, the accident and what he's claiming uh, his injuries are. The complaint, the answer, the bill of particulars, all of these are initially filed and then there can be amendments. I like looking at the bill of particulars because that's when they go into details about what they're claiming, the body parts, the treatment they received, the surgeries, and so forth. And this, I'm always comparing to what's happening in my workers' comp claim. Because sometimes I see situations where they're pursuing a number of body parts in the workers' comp claim, but they're not pursuing it in the GL claim. So that raises red flags. And then I see the flip side. They are, um, they're, they're not producing it, uh, they're not, they're pursuing it, they're not pursuing it in the workers' comp claim, and then they're doing it on the GL side. So I'm getting uh, confused there, right? So then that's the opposite situation. So it's always um, important to look at, at what, 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 they're, what they're claiming. Um, a lot of times I think the inconsistency is because they have a different attorney on the workers' comp side, on the GL side, who are not communicating. And the situations where it's the same firm doing both of them or where there's a, a relationship, we notice they're on the same page, but when they're not on the same page, I think we need to take advantage of that. 
So we should be asking for these documents. If you hear your GL counsel saying, oh, we just got a, um, an amended bill of particulars, you should be saying, oh, wait, can I get that? Can I send it to my workers' comm um, attorney? And we'll review it and we'll use it as, as much as we can in the court. Depositions, uh, we have used uh, deposition transcripts in the workers' comp claim because they are a sworn statement. So if they are available and we're about to take the claimant's testimony, I would request them, review them, provide them to the, the, the file. Um, we've actually had IME doctors review deposition and 50-H transcripts when it comes to assessing um, injuries and body parts because they're looking at the claimant's statements, what the claimant's telling them. If we don't send them to the IME doctor, we still look at what they're telling the IME doctor versus what they're testifying to the court versus what they're testifying to at the 50-H or the deposition. So I think we should be asking for those also. IMEs and expert reports, we do want to see what they're being, what's, what's being said on the general liability side, the expert reports, in particular, the vocational rehabilitation reports, we have used that on our side if they're available for permanency litigation, because we already have an expert saying, well, you know, this, this, this is the claimant's injuries, and this is what he can do, and this is what he can be rehabilitated to do, and this is what we see like his overall capabilities are, right? And we try to use it on the, in the workers' comp claim. So these are the, the main ones. Oh, mediation. Have a nice skip over mediations when I'm attending a mediation like once a month. So every time you hear your attorney or your adjuster say there's a mediation coming up, bells should be ringing and you should be reaching out to your workers' comp attorney for them to be communicating with your general liability attorney um, on what's needed for the mediation. I've been to mediations before where I was called into it at the very last minute and the claimant's attorney, the, you know, the plaintiff's attorney is claiming all sorts of things. And I read through their mediation statement and they're talking about a surgery that's authorized. I'm like, wait, this surgery was not authorized. The claim is not established for the back. It's only a shoulder and, a, and a, I don't know, like an elbow claim. And so my role at the mediation is really to clear, clear up confusion and to confirm what's really happening in the workers' comp claim because the mediators know, they, they're aware of what's happening, like how workers' comp claim work. And they know that the claimants are relying on the workers' comp claim and kind of like beefing up their demand. However, I believe this discussion should be had between workers' comp and general liability counsel ahead of the mediation. Let's not wait until the day of um, where things are being discussed just before the mediation. I think there should be an action plan. I think uh, the, an update in the workers' comp claim should be provided to your general liability counsel. They should be telling your workers' comp attorney what their defenses are or what, what they're going to try to pull apart. And so that way, everyone's on the same page um, with regards to you know, where we stand in terms of liability and potential damages. Also, it's important to know about the mediations because if we're talking about a global settlement, something I'll go into detail uh, later in the year, um, one of the goals of this collaboration, we should, we should be talking about the lien amount, the amount paid in indemnity and medicals and um, what, what, what the workers' comp side would be willing to do with regards to the lien. Are you going to lien the full lien, a partial lien? Um, is there going to be fresh money moving on the, the section, um, the workers' comp side if we were to do a section 32 settlement, which 
side note, I generally don't recommend. Um, but whatever it is, the, fi the, the financials, the dollars should be talked about ahead of the mediation so that everyone can go in and everyone's on the same page and the negotiations go more smoothly. All right. So that's it. I feel like I've talked your ears off today. This went a little longer than I anticipated. Um, that's an overview of the workers' comp claim, our milestones, what we should be talking about, the things that we should be asking for from the general liability side. If you have any questions, type them into the box if you haven't already. And I will take a look in a quick second. But for next month, um, we're going to be talking about risk reduction and transfer schemes. And this comes into play with like the wrap-ups and the things that we can do to get money back from the workers' comp side. Most of the construction claims that I handle are under some kind of a wrap-up where there is one common owner um, whose interests are on both sides of, of them. The, the scale, right? The workers' comp and the general liability. Do I pay here? Do I pay here? Um, so we'll we'll talk a lot about that next month. If you have any questions or any spe specific topic you'd like me to focus on, please do uh, let me know ahead of time, and I'll try to incorporate it into the webinar. All right. So, all right. Someone said, "Great job, thank you, um, Adam. Thank you very much. I, I hope you learned something here today." Uh, let me see if I have any questions. So, Mirage, I, 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 I don't know if your question got cut off, but I, I see an entry here from you, but I can't tell what exactly it is. Um, if you can send me an email, trasool, R-E-S-U-L, at loislc.com, I will answer your question. Um, I'm sorry I can't see it right now. Um, or give me a call and I'll go over it with you. Um, I think that's it. All right, I guess no other questions then. Um, if anything comes up, send me an email, give me a call, and be more than happy to chat with you. In the meantime, it is March, not February. It feels like spring today, though I see snow is coming on Wednesday. Um, enjoy the beginning of spring, and I will see you right here next month, April 4th. Uh, thanks for joining me, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.